Okay, well, I'm going to jump right in. Um, this is a tag team sermon, what we used to call a numchuck sermon at, uh, when we were younger at Antioch. And so my main goal is to stay on schedule and give Tom his allotted time. Because as, uh, as Ken shared with you, we're going to be teaching a semester-long course generally on this issue, and I, I want to get off on the right foot with Tom. So, um, and, and the only way I'm going to stay on schedule is if we all realize that all I'm doing is, all, all Tom and I are doing are, are really beginning a conversation here. Um, we're, we're really just surfacing some issues that, uh, that those of us who are followers of Christ ought to have a much longer conversation about. And, and one way to do that would be to, to join us for that semester-long course at Kilns College. Um, one of the beauties of planting a church, starting a new church, is that we have the opportunity to uh, very intentionally look at church practice and church belief and, and decide whether what we've known in the past is, comes mainly from Scripture or whether it's church tradition or just the way we've come to do things and, and the way we've come to believe about issues. And, and to reject those human uh, ideas and go back to the Bible. Uh, if you've been at Antioch for any length of time, you'll realize that, that one of the issues that we, we have kind of had a mini-reformation, if you will, is the issue of justice. Uh, it, it turns out that God cares a great deal about issues of justice and injustice, and, and the church, the believing church, the evangelical church, if you will, has, has largely abandoned that biblical view in the past hundred years. And so, so that's why we, we've started the Justice Conference and, and why we're continuing to, to talk about justice a lot. Another such area, an area in which the church has maybe missed the boat and, and not taken a really biblical stance is the whole area of what, for lack of a better term, we'll call conservation or creation care. Um, it's very popular today, uh, stemming largely from an article written back in the 70s, uh, which to believe that our current ecological crisis, um, the main reason for it is Christian belief in our country. Okay, so it's popular to place the blame for our ecological crisis on Christianity and its view of the relationship of humans to the rest of creation. Okay, so that's really what we're talking about. How does the Bible say we as humans, we as Christ followers, ought to consider and think about our relationship with the rest of creation? I don't have time to go into the history. It'll be part of, part of our course. It turns out the issue is much more complex than, than Dr. Lynn White made it out in that, in that article. Uh, the church has been culpable, but not so much for presenting uh, a particular view, but, but for allowing the biblical view to lay hidden while going along with the views of, well, in the first place, Greeks and, and now, nowadays secular views of the relationship of humanity with the rest of creation, okay? So um, I'm going to begin by uh, talking just briefly about uh, how we tend to see, we meaning both the church and the world around us, uh, our relationship to the creation. And, and the answers to the question, how do we relate to the environment today, have, have been these sorts of things, that first of all, um, the environment, the rest of creation is there to serve us. It, it basically has a, a pragmatic or utilitarian view. We are to use creation for our benefit, and, and that's the main relationship. Um, there's a couple of different uh, views, current, about how uh, we relate to other living things, for instance. One would be kind of an evolutionary naturalistic view is that, that we're no different than other living things, that, that we're all the product of a, of a purposeless evolutionary process. We may be uh, the pinnacle of that process, but, 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 but we're different only in degree and not in kind, okay? Another view is that, that we are so different from other creatures that, 
that they really don't have any place, we, that we can exploit them and use them uh, as much as we'd like. So, so those are the kind of the views that are current. Um, and, and I want to go through uh, a real brief introduction to what Scripture has to say. Um, I'm going to go from Genesis to Revelation, and I'm going to do it in five minutes. So obviously I'm just hitting some high points and, and missing a lot. Okay? But let's, let's start with Genesis 1, um, 28, which is, which is kind of the, the central verse that, that Christians and those who would accuse Christians of, a, of an improper relationship with the environment uh, go to. So, so here it is. I think you're, you're all familiar with it. And God blessed uh, the first humans, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28. So is that all the Bible has to say about this issue? Because if we're in error about a, a biblical theology of creation, it's not because of ignoring the Bible entirely. It's because of going to a verse like this and making it say what we want it to say, without reference to all the other passages in Scripture that might uh, impinge upon the, the issue, okay? Um, first of all, I should point out that dominion does not mean domination, and that the historic understanding of, of many Christians has been that this verse is mainly not about privilege, but about responsibility, okay? And you can see right away that there's some issues that need to be cashed out there. Which is it? Is it, is it both and? Is it, is it either or? What is it? But to the extent that we've gone astray from the biblical understanding today, it's largely in seeing this as, as a verse that offers humanity privilege without responsibility alongside of it. Okay? Um, so again, I'm going to touch down on, on other passages um, there, there's probably 22 major creation passages in Scripture, and I'm not going to get to all of them. But let's, let's begin by going back just a few verses to Genesis 1.25. And this is prior to the creation of Adam and Eve. So, so this is kind of a summary statement of what God has uh, created up until and prior to humanity. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps upon the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Okay? God calls his creation good. There's no mention here about creation being good in order to serve humanity. God calls his creation good without reference to humanity. Okay? Um, I don't have them up on the screen here, but there's a couple of other verses that we should touch down on uh, while, before we leave uh, the creation account in Genesis. Um, if we go on in Genesis 1, verses 29 and 30 tell us a little bit more. In verse 29, God says that he's provided for humans, for Adam and Eve and their descendants, every green plant. And in verse 30, he goes on to say, and every green plant that I've provided to you is also provided to the other living animals, okay? Now, this is not an ecological statement, as it's been made by some, indicating that, that the eagle and the, the lion were vegetarian at some point in history. That's not what this is saying. What this is is a constraint upon uh, humanity's use of green plants and all the other resources God has provided. In other words, God is saying here, I've provided all this earth for you. I've provided abundant resources which will get you through, allow you to flourish. But I've also provided those same resources to a whole host of other creatures. And your use of those resources ought to bear in mind their need of those same resources. Okay? Another point that I'll, I'll come back to later comes from Genesis uh, 2, uh, 15 and 29, I think it is. And in those two verses, we find that humanity is formed by God out of the dust of the earth. And in verse 29, all other creatures are formed by God 
out of the dust of the earth. Okay? So physically, there's a real sameness between us and the rest of creation. Okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back and kind of draw out the points I want to make from these verses at the end. But uh, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to follow that. Um, so the next verse I want to... Sh- I'm going to skip over a whole lot of uh, meaty creation passages, including the one in, uh, in Job chapters 39 and 40, which is where Job comes face to face with God. Okay? And, and in that passage, God takes Job through the creation of, of, all, of everything. Okay? And, and God patiently takes Job through the fact that God is the creator and the sovereign over the abiotic parts of the creation, that is the non-living things, the rivers and the mountains and the streams, that God created all other living things, and he names many of them in this dialogue with Job. And at the end of that, God talks to Job and says, and I'm the one who created you. And the take-home message that Job gets out of this whole monologue of, of God's is that Job is a creature, that, that Job shares creatureliness with everything else and is not in a, in a hierarchical position that allows him to question God's purposes and God's, and, and God's dealings, okay? Psalm 104, which I'm also not going to take time to go to today, is, is a creation psalm. It's, it's a reiteration in the understanding of most commentators and theologians of the Genesis 1 account of creation. And again, it goes through the creation of the mountains and the rivers and, and the air and the heavens and the seas. It goes through the creation and the sustenance of all other living creatures. And then the creation and sustenance of human beings is, is kind of just a tag at the end. Uh, there's a sense in which human beings definitely have a special place in God's economy, but the overarching portrayal of creation in Scripture is that we share creatureliness with everything else that God created. To be sure, we are distinct from other creatures. With regards to how we, how we make decisions that affect conservation and and the livelihood of other creatures, we are very distinct. We are the only creatures on earth that make moral decisions, that even ask the question, will my using this resource negatively affect another creature? The lion doesn't do that. The deer doesn't do that. Only humans have that moral component to the way we use the resources God has given us. And so I'm, I'm not saying that humans are not distinct or special in God's economy, but I'm pointing out the fact that whenever God takes people through an, an account of creation, the fundamental characteristic of humanity is its creatureliness. It's, com- it's unity or solidarity with all other things that were created by God. Okay, what I do want to take you to is uh, Psalm 148, and and what I have on the ver- the the board is just the kind of the pivotal center section, which says, "Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away." This entire Psalm, Psalm 148, is a praise Psalm which calls all of creation to praise and worship of God. It goes through the rivers and the mountains. It goes through some of the other living creatures. It talks about angels. Um, it, it, It covers all of creation and places humanity just as one of the all in being called to worship and praise the Creator. Okay? So... I'd encourage you to go home sometime this week and, and spend a little time in Psalm 148 and see, again, that not only are we just one of a list of the creatures, but all of the creatures and even the, the non-living components of creation are called upon to worship, to give praise to the Creator. Okay. Okay. 
I'm going to skip all the way, um, all the way to the New Testament, and uh, I'm, I'm going to skip most of the New Testament too. Jesus interacts with other creatures and and with the non-living parts of creation over and over again. But, but there's a sense in which the Gospels don't draw that out or highlight it because the Gospel writers themselves were much closer to the rest of creation than we are in our urban societies today. And again, I don't have this up on the screen, but I think you're familiar with a passage from <clears throat> the, the so-called Sermon on the Mount found in, in Matthew 6, this por- the, the end of Matthew 6 is this portion. And, and Jesus' main message here is that we ought not be anxious about where, how we're going to feed ourselves, how we're going to clothe ourselves. And, <clears throat> and in bringing this message, Jesus refers to other creatures. First, the birds of the air and the sparrows in particular. And then the flowers of the field and the lilies in particular. And his point is that they don't worry about how they're going to be taken care of, but God cares for them in the same way we ought not to stress because God's faithful and committed to take care of us. Now, what I want to draw out for my purposes this morning is that nowhere in these passages does Jesus in any way denigrate the value of the lily or the sparrow. In fact, the only thing that makes this comparison work is that what Jesus is saying is that you people don't place much value on the sparrow or the lily, but God does. Okay? But we're skipping that. We're going all the way to uh, Revelation, I think, is our next verse. And... uh, And this is from a picture of a a future time, presumably in heaven, before the throne of God, and and the praise of all creation of God the Father and the Lamb who was slain. And so the first song we sang, I know there were only a handful of you here by that time this morning, but it talks about this exact time, and it talks about people praising God. But the picture we actually have in Revelation, in in John's vision, has more than just people there. It has all creation there. In fact, there's there's a ring of 24 elders, and it's inside that ring, the most inner circle, if you will, that we're reading about in verses 6 through 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Now, these are, these are pictures. These aren't real creatures um, living on, on earth today. Full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And and this passage makes a number of my points, which which I haven't really gotten to yet. One of them is that we share a creatureliness with other beings. Another is that they all pray, that, that all of creation praises God, not just humans who can articulate it in speech. But, but what I want to show you here is that, that there's representatives of all living things. Um, there's a lion, which presumably represents all wild animals. There's, a, there's an ox, which presumably represents all cultivated or, or all livestock, all cultivated animals. And there, there's an eagle, which represents at least the birds. And, and man, or at least a, a creature with a face of a man, is just one of the four, okay? So our, <clears throat> our view of creation has tended to be very man-centered, very anthropocentric. And, and what I'm bringing to you is that the Bible's portrayal of creation is, is balanced and, and really has a much a, a, a place of a, a bigger place for all other creation, not just a, a man-centered view of creation. And then let me um, 
take you to one more passage in Revelation uh, before I kind of give you the principles that I think come out of this. And this is a picture in Revelation 11, 17 through 18 of the judgment seat. So now, now we have here a prayer that, that is thanking God for his righteous judgment at the, at the end of this age, at the time of judgment. So here's that prayer. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Okay? We don't preach a whole lot of sermons about the fact that, that some of those who are judged will be those who are culpable for the destruction of the earth on which we live today. Okay? So I want to I leave you with five principles that, that I draw out of a, a broad understanding of what Scripture has to say about creation, not just a camping on one verse that, that can kind of be twisted to justify our own use of God's resources without reference to, to other creatures and such. And so the first thing, I, the first biblical principle that I think we need to, to wrestle with and, and incorporate in our understanding of a, a biblical theology of creation is that humans, though distinct in very particular ways, share with the rest of creation a creatureliness, okay? And I've mentioned that already. Again, we want to camp on the fact that we are more intelligent, more moral, have capacities that the rest of creation doesn't have. But each time there's a, a meaty creation passage in Scripture, we find kind of the opposite or, or, or a stress on the opposite, which is that we begin, our most fundamental characteristic is as creatures who share that creatureliness with all the rest of creation. To be sure, God has an expectation beyond that that he has for other creatures of us based on our distinctiveness and our uniqueness. But we begin a, a right theology of creation by understanding that we are creatures and we share that creatureliness with everything else on the planet. The second principle that I would draw out here is, is contrary to the, the very practical or utilitarian view that both the church and our culture tends to take. And that is that the rest of creation has intrinsic value to God, not merely utilitarian value to human beings. Okay? Again, looking at Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, God cares about the sparrow. God greatly values the lily of the field even if it doesn't have any value to us or, or usefulness to us. Um, and other passages, again, would be Genesis 1.25, where God called the whole creation good. And, uh, and we could go to another, a, a whole lot of other passages in which it's clear that God values everything he created as any good artist would. Okay? The third principle I think we should wrestle with is that while humans are unique in worshiping and praising God in, in articulate propositional speech, the Bible makes it clear that every creature, and even the inanimate, the, the non-living parts of the creation, worship God, give God praise, simply by being and doing what he called them to be and do. Okay? So we need to get over this idea that, that it's only usefulness to us that should govern whether we care about a living creature. And obviously this has implications for our conservation. Extinction of species is a bad thing on God's view, even if we've never found a human use for those species. Okay? So the third principle is that all of creation has intrinsic value to God. Um, and that, that humans worship God and, and have, a, have a role in praising God even though they don't do it in, in speech like we do. Okay? 
So, so this is an overarching principle, number four, and, and we've touched upon it already, and that is that the Bible portrays creation not in an anthropocentric, not a human-centered way, but in a theocentric way. Even the, the creation account in Genesis 1, chapter 1, is theocentric, not anthropocentric. The climax of, climax of the creation account is not day six in the creation of humans, but day seven, when God rested from all that he created and called it good, okay? In the same way, we could go to, to a number of other creation passages and discover that it's, it's, it's for God more than it's for human beings, okay? There's a sense in which God did create with humans in mind as, as an end goal, but ultimately it's a theocentric creation, not an anthropocentric creation. And, and uh, one passage we didn't go to is Genesis 2, uh, I think it's uh, Genesis 2.15, where God places Adam and Eve in the garden, and most of our translations say it's in order that they might work or cultivate um, and till it, something like that. But the Hebrew words, the, the two Hebrew verbs used there of what Adam and Eve were, to, or Adam in particular, was to do with the garden are usually translated in other parts of the Bible as serve and protect, okay? So God placed Adam in the garden to serve and protect, not merely to work and cultivate, okay? And then the fifth thing that I'm just going to throw out there, I don't have any time to, to go through this with you, maybe Tom will touch upon it a little, is that the redemption that Jesus came to institute, the, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, has reference to all of creation, not just to the salvation of souls for eternity future, Okay? So to the extent that we are called to be God's ambassadors in continuing to, to bring in the kingdom of God on earth, it, it applies not just to winning souls for heaven. It applies to redeeming all of creation, which, has a, which certainly has a very, much, very much an environmental and conservation component to it. Again, I'm not going to spend any time there. I'm going to turn it over to Tom here pretty quick. Uh, but, I, but I've just surfaced five principles of creation theology that I think are more biblical than the ones we've tended to grow up with even in the Bible-believing church of our day, okay? So we're going to see a video in just a second. I'm going to say a quick prayer here, and, and in doing so, I'll, I'll be preaching in this prayer a little because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and, and, and I'm going to pray that for us here now, okay? So let's pray together. Father God, creator, sustainer of the universe, um, we do pray that your name would be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. We do pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And we thank you for sending Jesus to institute that 2,000 years ago. We do pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Creator, we, we pray that as we wrestle with what that means to us as followers of Jesus Christ, what that means in relation not only to the saving of souls and to the, to the promoting of justice in the lives of humans here in Bend and around the world, but also as we wrestle with what that means as far as what would redemption look like to the rest of creation which you've told us in what we call Romans 8, the rest of creation is waiting for, for the sons and daughters of God to, to step up and be the redeemers that you've called them to be. We, we would repent of going along with the unbiblical beliefs of the world in which we live, and we would turn back to your word and pray that your Holy Spirit would give us a more biblical understanding of how you would have us as followers of Christ treat and interact with the rest of your creation, which you called good 
and which we certainly recognize as being very, very good and beyond our understanding. And we pray these things in the name of the Redeemer Christ. Amen. Cue the video. Senator Collins, thanks for coming in. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. This ship that was involved in the incident off Western Australia this week... Yeah, the one the front fell off? Yeah. Yeah, that's not very typical. I'd like to make that point. Well, how is it untypical? Well, there are a lot of these ships going around the world all the time, and very seldom does anything like this happen. I just don't want people thinking that tankers aren't safe. Was this tanker safe? Well, I was thinking more about the other ones. The ones that are safe? Yeah, the ones the front doesn't fall off. Well, if this wasn't safe, why did it have 80,000 tonnes of oil on it? Well, I'm not saying it wasn't safe. It's just perhaps not quite as safe as some of the other ones. Why? Well, some of them are built so the front doesn't fall off at all. Well, wasn't this built so the front wouldn't fall off? Well, obviously not. How do you know? Well, because the front fell off and 20,000 tonnes of crude oil spilled into the sea caught fire. It's a bit of a giveaway. I'd just like to make the point that that is not normal. Well, what sort of standards are these uh, oil tankers built to? Oh, very rigorous maritime engineering standards. What sort of thing? Well, the front's not supposed to fall off for a start. And what other things? Well, there are uh, regulations governing the uh, materials that they can be made of. What materials? Well, cardboard's out. And? No cardboard derivatives. Like paper? No paper. No string, no sellotape. Rubber? No, rubber's out. Um, they've got to have a steering wheel. There's a minimum crew requirement. What's the minimum crew? Oh, one, I suppose. So the allegations that they're just designed to carry as much oil as possible uh, oh, and the consequences, I mean, that's ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. These are very, very strong vessels. So what happened in this case? Well, the front fell off in this case by all means, but it's very unusual. But Senator Collins, why did the front book fall off? Well, a wave hit it. A wave hit it? A wave hit the ship. Is that unusual? Oh, yeah. At sea chance in a million. So what do you do to protect the environment in cases well, like this? the ship was towed outside the environment. Into another environment? No, no, no. It's been towed beyond the environment. It's yes, not in the environment. A... No, but from one environment to another environment. No, it's beyond the environment. It's not in an environment. It well, has been be towed somewhere. beyond the environment. Well, what's out there? Nothing's out there. Well, there must be something there out there. There is nothing out there. All there is is sea and birds and fish. And? And 20,000 tonnes of crude oil. And what else? And a fire. And anything else? And the part of the ship that the front fell off. But there's nothing else out there. Senator Collins, thanks for it's joining us. a complete us. void. Yeah, we're out of time. The environment's perfectly safe. We're out of time? Yeah. Can you book me a cab? But didn't you come in a Commonwealth car? Yes, I did. But what happened? Well, the front fell off. I, uh, I, I like to show that before I speak because, uh, well, first, it's just it's a hoot to watch you all start to catch on and, and laugh, uh, except for the three guys over here, which never did quite get it. Um, Second, it's to, to disabuse you of the notion that I'm going to come up here and give you the bad dog lecture and, and you know, wag my finger and scold you. That's uh, it's not why I'm here. Uh, none of us has room to be pharisaical on this. Uh, we're, all, we're all learning this and, and doing it the best we can. Um, but third, I think it also points out a, a very critical uh, error that we make, uh, particularly we in the church, um, and that is to think that the, the environment is out there that it's apart from us, that it's separate from us. And therefore, it's something that we, as a church, don't think much about or, or care much about. Um, so if that's true, the question is, how did we get here and, and why do we stay? And, and Rick's done an excellent job of um, walking us through uh, at a very quick pace, and I do encourage you to, to sign up for the Classic Kilns where we can dive into this more deeply, um, on the theology of it. Uh, because frankly, the... The, the, the first obstacle uh, facing us in this is bad theology. Um, you know, the, the heresy of dualism, that uh, souls are sacred but the rest of the, the world is not, that, uh, um, that uh, the world is, is headed for ultimate destruction, which, you know, the Bible clearly says, no, it's, it's headed for new creation, and, and on and on, which, again, Rick has, has done a great job of walking us through. Um, the second big obstacle is a mistrust of science. Right, uh, we oftentimes uh, in the church are presented with some scientific findings that uh, that may that may call into question our interpretation of Scripture. And rather than remembering that all truth is God's truth, we sometimes have a knee-jerk reaction and, and reject the science. When what we ought to be doing is prayerfully and carefully taking another look at Scripture to see, okay. Have we, have we really interpreted Scripture right? Maybe we need to rethink that. Um, re, you know, remember what the church did to Galileo uh, for a good example for that. Uh, you know, he had the audacity to uh, call into question the, the interpretation of the day which said that the earth revolved or that the sun revolved around the earth. 
Third uh, is, in, and I probably don't need to say much on this, in this day and time of partisan gridlock and, and rancorous fiscal cliffs and budget deals and debates, but uh, politicization. Here in the U.S., uh, the environment has become a, a very political issue um, when clearly uh, it's a biblical issue. So um, we in the church have unfortunately tended to think that's a, a, a left issue, that's not our concern, we don't do that. Um, and I would just remind us that it is in fact a biblical issue and, and if you need to go to politics, remember that, uh, that many of the, uh, the great strides in the modern environmental movement in the U.S. were made by Republican leaders, Teddy Roosevelt, Richard Nixon, and others. So it's, it's really, it's not a their issue or, or, or their issue, it's, it's God's issue, it's, it's a concern of God. Last but not least, uh, and in fact I would argue it's probably greatest in terms of our obstacles, is um, our affluence, and if I may say it, our greed. We, uh, we want what we want when we want it, and, and, and I chief among us. Um, we have in many ways confused and traded in the abundant life that Jesus gives us for the American dream. We, we believe the prosperity gospel that says, uh, you know, wealth and material well-being is a, is a reward for faith and for obedience, uh, when clearly history uh, and today would suggest that, look, there are, there are a lot of folks who don't believe that are doing quite well, and there are a lot of believing brothers and sisters who are in abject poverty. Um, so we really need to, to look at that and, and remember that the population of North America and Western Europe, while we only comprise 12% of the world's population, we account for 60% of the world's consumptive spending. So there's a, a huge disparity there, but it is one that um, presents a great obstacle to our engaging in this issue, I would argue. And in fact, I would say that oftentimes that's really the issue for us, and we use the, the theological, the, the, the science, the politicization as, as a smokescreen for that. So, as a result of all that, the followers of Jesus uh, are in many ways missing uh, on this issue. If you look at any community around the country and, and in many parts of the world, you'll see a strong Christian presence in healthcare, in education, and homeless services, and adoption services, addiction services, you name it, until you get to the environment. And where are we? We're, we're missing, and at times, openly hostile to engaging on this issue. And as a result, look what's happening. Many of the environmental stances um, that, are, are, that are out there uh, as a result of our abdication uh, are counter to some of the things that the Bible would have us believe and do. Um, the unbelieving world looks at us as, you know, as that article, the Lynn White article that Rick referenced, as the problem rather than as a part of the solution. We are missing an action and it's time for that to change. It's time for us to reclaim our, our rightful responsibility as God's stewards of his earth. Well, so much for the itch, so how about some scratch? Um, fortunately, the church around the world is awakening, um, and even here in the U.S., if belatedly. Uh, as, as one example of that, in 2010, the Lausanne movement adopted the Cape Town Commitment which says in part, uh, I think we're maybe missing about a little bit of that. Okay, that's okay, we'll go with that. We cannot claim to love God while abusing what belongs to Christ by right of creation, redemption, and inheritance. If Jesus is Lord of all the earth, we cannot separate our relationship to Christ from how we act in relation to the earth. For to proclaim the gospel that says Jesus is Lord is to proclaim the gospel that includes the earth since Christ's lordship is over all creation. Creation care is thus a gospel issue with the lordship, within the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we therefore must commit ourselves to an urgent and prophetic ecological responsibility. Well, what is that urgent and ecological responsibility? Uh, 
responsibility, prophetic ecological responsibility. Um, is this simply another set of rules? Is it a, another to-do list? Uh, you know, reduce, reuse, and recycle, or, or worse yet, where Birkenstocks eat granola and mope. Um, for the record, these are Birkenstocks, and I do eat granola. I don't, I don't mope very often. Um, It, no, it's not. It, this isn't a program. This isn't a set of to-dos. This isn't a, red, a, a list of rules. It is, in a word, relationship. All that is was created out of the loving relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and we are invited into that relationship. I'll probably butcher the, the Greek, but perichoresis, the, 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 the dance that the, that the Trinity does, that we are invited to join in, that includes all of creation. A loving relationship of knowing, of serving, of blessing, of being blessed. Um, Stephen Bauma Prediger, uh, the, the uh, chair of the religion department at Hope College, wrote a, a wonderful quote in his book, For the Beauty of the Earth. And it, and it says, we only care for that what we love for we, we only care for what we love we only love what we know and we only truly know what we experience relationship I care for my family because I love my family I love my family because they are with me they I am in relationship with them the same is and should be true of the wider creation as Wendell Berry puts it, and this is a long quote, but I think it's a wonderful quote, the question that must be addressed, therefore, is not how to care for the planet, but how to care for each of the planet's millions of human and natural neighborhoods, each of its millions of small pieces and parcels of land, each one of which is in some precious way different from all the others. Our understandable wish to preserve the planet must somehow be reduced to the scale of our competence. That is, to the wish to preserve all of its humble households and neighborhoods. What can accomplish this reduction? I will say again without overweening hope, but with certainty nonetheless that only love can do it. Only love can bring intelligence out of the institutions and organizations where it aggrandizes itself into the presence of the work that must be done. Love is never abstract. It does not adhere to the universe or the planet or the nation or the institution or the profession, but to the singular sparrows of the street, the lilies of the field, the least of these, my brethren. This isn't abstract. This isn't a program. This isn't a... a it's not even a have to. Yes, we do have to do by, by virtue of the biblical mandate. It's a get to. We get to do this. We get to enter into relationship with the entirety of God's creation because it is good, because he called, it to, he called us to. It's an act of love. It is a relationship. Lived out as a part of a whole life discipleship, as a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in community, in small, sometimes stuttering, spirit-led spirit steps that can make such an enormous difference. I mean, imagine, what, what if the world, the unbelieving world, saw us acting instead of just heard us talking? What if we were out in the streams and the fields and, and downtown cleaning streets, working alongside our brothers and sisters, unbelieving though they may be, to care about this amazing world that God created, to care about them as fellow human beings, to, to, to not look at them simply as evangelical targets, but as, as humans with whom we're called to be in relationship and to love and to care about and to share their burdens and to celebrate their joys as we work together for the good of the entire creation. What a huge difference that would make, not only for the creation, but for our gospel witness. And as we do this, as we live this type of life, we are, going back to the, the scriptures that, that Rick put up, we are, in fact, 
living out the first command that God gave us, Genesis 2.15. God took the, took the man and the woman and put them in the garden to, as he accurately translated the Avad and Shemar of Hebrew, to protect and serve the creation. And the last command that God gave us, Mark 16, 15, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. If we live that way, we'll be doing both. And yes, it's hard work. And yes, the obstacles sometimes seem insurmountable. You look at climate change. You look at bio, uh, biodiversity decline, species extinction. You look at poverty. You look at, at all these intractable challenges that we face but we have something that the world doesn't have fueling our efforts we have hope we have the hope of God's new creation that he is in us and we are new creation and that through us he is renewing the entirety of his creation we are agents of Jesus' redemption of his shalom and that hope, that hope fuels our efforts. As N.T. Wright puts it, when Paul wrote his great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he didn't end by saying, so, let's celebrate the great future life that awaits us. No, he ended it by saying, so get on with your work, because you know that in the Lord it won't go to waste. When the final resurrection occurs as a centerpiece of God's new creation, we will discover that everything done in the present world in the power of Jesus' resurrection will be celebrated and included, appropriately transformed. Let me wrap up just with a couple of examples from the, from the ministry that I'm a part of, uh, Arasha, uh, working now in 19 countries. Um, we've been at it since 1983, where, where the name actually means Portuguese. Uh, it, the name means the rock in Portuguese. Um, and again, each and every one of these quick examples is, is all about relationship. Um, and, and, and even the, the secular environmental movement recognizes that that the way we've tried to do things, that the way the world has tried to do things hasn't worked. We've tended to view the problems as purely technical and the solutions as, as purely tactical. And they've come to realize that that doesn't work, that, that what really has to happen is, is, is a change of heart because it is human choices that lead to the challenges we face and it's human choices that can make a difference. So the question then is what changes the heart and what changes the heart, as we know, is the love of Jesus Christ. The restoration of the relationship of us to God, us to each other, and us to the creation. So in Kenya, a once vast forest uh, along the, the coast, decade by decade, had dwindled down to just a, a few remaining hectares, and, and all of the critters that lived there and all of the people that lived there were suffering. And the reason it had been being cut down was simply because the people needed to earn a living so that they could feed their kids and send them to school, and, and we want to help that. So the solution is not to come in and to regulate, but the solution is to come in and, and work with them and to figure out what it is they need and what, what is their heart's desires and, and how can we find a solution that mutually benefits people and planet. And so by, by creating a, an ecotourism industry and, and training people for jobs and, and building the infrastructure and, and getting them involved in the reforestation and, and helping them flourish as the forest flourishes, that relationship is, is reconnected and, and, and all benefit. Or in, or in Lebanon, in the Amik Valley, where uh, decades of, of poor farming practices had drained this, this wetland, the farmers suffering and the birds, because it's on a, a migratory flyway, as the, as the birds go from Europe to Africa each year, were suffering. Everybody was losing. And so by working with those farmers, again, in relationship as being people who live in the community and care about those folks, began to create solutions that 
ultimately, if I showed you the before and after picture, you'd just simply be amazing. The, the, the wetlands have been restored, the farmers are doing better, the birds are happy. Relationship, reconciliation, shalom. And Lyndon Washington, working with uh, the, uh, the farmers there to help them uh, protect their berry crops and protect the salmon that, that swim in the streams near their farm fields. Again, as, as people of the community in relationship with them. In Texas, where we just moved from, uh, working with a foster care facility that's on a 7,000-acre cattle ranch that's home to endangered bird species, getting those kids out into nature, these, these poor, abused, neglected, abandoned children just aching and hurting and helping them to get out onto the land to interact with and, and bring healing to the land and, and find healing for themselves. Here in Central Oregon, where we've just moved a, a year and a half ago now, we've been absolutely floored by the relationships that God had waiting for us here with, with Rick and with Ken and with you all in Kilns and and now recently with, uh, with Young Life up in, uh, up in Antelope. We've, we've just reached an agreement in principle to... Uh, go in there and partner with them to begin restoring the, the Big Muddy Creek that flows into the John Day that uh, has been degraded by decades, if not centuries, of overgrazing and mismanagement uh, that's uh, spawning grounds for steelhead trout and bringing volunteers out to do that work, creating environmental education programs, partnering with Trout Unlimited and the Forest Service and relating as God's people, as Jesus' agents of Shalom. Um, and I want to invite any of you who are interested in any of this to, to get involved. We'll, we've got a, uh, I think we've got maybe contact info there. We've got a table out in the, uh, in the commons with uh, free information for you to pick up. And as Rick said, the, the Kilns class, we'd love to see you there. Um, again, this isn't a have to, it's a get to. And it, and it really is a blessing. Let me just close with the, uh, the passage in Colossians, which I think sums it up so well. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Father, we do praise you and worship you. Lord Jesus, you are the head of all things, redeemer of all things. Lord, use us.